Hey listeners, this is Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia. After more than a decade of venture building, bootstrapping, scaling, and now investing in Southeast Asia, I sit down with founders, investors, and entrepreneurs who can share their hard-earned lessons and stories for the benefit of the Asia ecosystem and beyond. Today, I sit down with my good friend, Walter Guevara. Due to internet latency, we had some trouble getting our usual homely vibe of lively conversation. However, despite the technical issues, we still packed the episode with topics that are beneficial, especially if you care about the energy markets of Latin and Southeast Asia and why it's hard to drive innovation in the space. Deep tech presents very hard topics for people to approach, but it deserves more airtime. Secondly, we unpack the fintech ecosystem of Southeast Asia from the markets of Vietnam, Philippines, and Malaysia, and how innovation, startups, and investment will unfold in the coming years. Lastly, we talk about Walter's current endeavor in tackling the mental wellness space for minorities and how mental health affects more of our lives than we realize. Also, stick around to hear the final section on some of the big differences between Latam and Southeast Asia from Walter's firsthand experience. If you're ready to learn, dive in and listen. Walter Guevara, my half Taiwanese, half Peruvian brother from another mother. How are you doing? Hey, Alex. Good to have you here. Uh, how's everything over there? Everything, everything's good in KL. Um, it's nighttime. It's, I think it's daytime for you, right? Yeah, it's daytime. It's 8 a.m. But uh, happy to have you. Uh, where, where are you currently? Uh, I'm in. I'm in. Fort Worth. Fort Worth uh, in Fort Worth in Texas. Okay. Fort Worth, yeah. Yeah, Fort Worth. Cool. Uh, so today we have with us Walter, co-founder and CEO of Therapy Go, an online therapy platform provider which provides telebehavioral health via chat and video across LATAM in four, four countries. Did I get that right? That's right. Uh, and you were born and raised in Peru? I was born in Washington State and, and I grew up uh, a significant part of my life in Costa Rica. Oh, in Costa Rica. Oh, that's right. But you're, which side of your family? You're from Peru originally, right? I mean, your family. My, my, my father, yes. Yeah, father. Okay. So, but you grew up in Costa Rica, which is probably very different than, than Peru, where you have one, well, your, your company's headquartered in Peru, right? Um, so, given the times, we, we're a Delaware C Corp. We have, a, a, mm. I would say, more than half of the team in Peru. That's right. Okay, so you're kind of leveraging the remote work, but uh, you're trying to probably get an investor base from the U.S. That's correct. So, I mean, we've talked about this before. Do you, do you feel more Latin American or more Asian, I guess? Right. So I, I guess in the, in the social aspect, in the sense of always want to, wanting to hang out and, and say have a barbecue and such, I guess I would be more, more Latin American. But on the yeah. other aspect of say introspection family values respecting the elders um being a foodie uh, i would consider <laughs> myself moration fair enough we'll briefly discuss your background um you spent most of your early career in peru right so where you worked uh, at next group which is one of the largest pe firms in peru from 2009 to 2010 um what, what was your favorite deal back then um so my favorite deal was acquiring a school a k-12 uh, mm. the, the goal was to educate as many people as possible, given that education is deficient. So we acquired a, a small um, three-school setup, and uh, part of the deal was to roll it up. So um, nowadays, it's, it's closer to the target, which was at the time was 100 schools. I believe now oh, wow. it's around, big... ar- around 60, 60 schools. So it's a, big, it's, okay. it's a very big chain. Uh, then uh, you also had some experience raising money for institutional investors. Um, well, yeah. So 
back in the day, we, we made some, some uh, slides and went around institutional investors. Uh, one of the, the big ones, I mean, at the time it was a new name for me, but, uh, I'm sure yeah. you, you know, you know, Tomasek. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but mostly, uh, a, a big chunk of the money came from family offices. So in, in Latin America, okay, kind of like South, Southeast Asia, uh, a big chunk of the money is with yeah. families. Mm-hmm. And then you spent quite a few years doing energy where 2009 and 2011, you worked for a company called Inkia Energy, which is a utilities provider for electricity. Uh, they do what production, transmission, and distribution across nine countries in Latin America. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So that was my, yeah. my first really international experience. We, we focused on gas power, thermal and uh, hydro mm-hmm. uh, in terms of new yeah. development. And the, the footprint was all over the place, Dominican Republic, Guatemala, Chile, Peru, Colombia, and so forth. And, uh, we, we even tried to acquire assets in Poland and the U S oh, ultimately, okay. ultimately, uh, that, that didn't go through. And, uh, really the exciting part was focusing on the new technologies. So at the time, mm-hmm. at the time, uh, com- combined cycle. Uh, gas was, was relatively new for, for the region and highly efficient and considered a greener energy than existing heavy fuel and, and coal. And mm. the other, the other interesting project was a huge hydro, uh, close to 600 megawatts, which is the second biggest in Peru. And, uh, we worked in a whole bunch of renewable energy projects. So. Yeah. If you go to the Dominican Republic and you see some wind turbines, uh, it might have been part of our our footprint. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. And then you you continued your power your energy journey and worked for IC Power, uh, which is a subsidiary of Israeli Corp, uh, one of the largest, actually probably the largest holding company in Israel, founded by the government, right? Uh, so at, at the time, it it belonged to to the richest Israeli. Uh, okay. Uh, Offer Group. So it's, it's the, both companies are related. Inkia and, and IC Power, they're, they're related companies. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're related companies, and, and, I see. Yeah. So, uh, wearing the IC Power hat, that's, that's what we were out looking for projects overseas. So that's how we mm-hmm. went to Poland and we're considering buying some assets over there. So the interesting mm-hmm. thing about, about Southeast Asia and Latin America is that new builds include gas power plants, uh, hydro uh, and, yeah. and such. But, but if you go to, if you go to, uh, Europe, most of their new builds are renewables. So, mm-hmm. um, but this, this creates a problem because renewable energy, uh, does not have a, a, uh, an dispatch order. You just have renewable energy. You just take the energy, yeah. whatever, whenever it comes in. Correct. So as, as a result, all of the low efficiency thermal power has to be displaced, right? And, and that, that creates a, so a little bit all, of chaos. All the value is just lost then. Uh, for, for those existing projects, yes. And on the other hand, yeah. the renewable energy is much more expensive. So even though you, you have new power plants in the system, ultimately everybody's paying 3x more money for their electricity. I guess that explains a lot of why the, the energy sector moves a lot slower in terms of um, 
developing more innovative or even adopting more renewables. It's just a, uh, it's very hard to, to, you know, let go of that, that, all that investment. It's probably very similar to telecom too. You sink money into like 3G, now you're in 4G and finally you're in 5G and every year it's just changing faster. But um, I guess to, to the winner goes with spoils, is that the same for energy? Well, it's similar in the sense that you have a long elite time to set up all those power yeah. plants. And on top of that, oftentimes renewable energy has to be subsidized. So you subsidize mm. renewable energy. Uh, if you look at some countries like Germany, you, you wouldn't believe how much solar projects they have, even though it, it, naturally solar power plants should be closer to the equator uh, given yeah. radiance. Okay, let's, uh, before we dive too deep in energy, let's, I'll finish the rest of your experience. So uh, you decided to, did you want to, you worked in Latin for quite a few years already, more than five, six years, uh, and you wanted to experience Asia or you did your MBA? Want to go, what, what was the story there? That's right. I, I did my MBA at INSEAD and it's a double campus program. So there's a campus in mm -hmm. France and there's, there's a campus in Singapore. So I, I recruited in Singapore. And, and that's how I ended up in Southeast Asia, which was a fantastic experience to, to live in Southeast Asia. Did you always want to live in Southeast Asia or just more by chance? Uh, I wanted to be in Asia and uh, it was more by chance that I ended up in, in Southeast Asia in, in countries okay. such as uh, Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, and Singapore. Uh, and then, so after you did your MBA intern, you actually did an um, internship at Itawa BBA, the largest investment bank in Latin America. It seems like you could have continued a you know very prestigious finance career how come you decided to not not follow that path right so so at the time uh, i felt that southeast asia was entering uh, more of a digital age it was the mm. beginning of all all the, the rise of all the unicorns in southeast asia so yeah. so i felt that i had to be closer to this because it, it, it would yeah. be more more future proof you know if if you look yeah. at 2021 uh, investment banks such as Goldman Sachs need to pay $110,000 just to hire first-year analysts. And the reason yeah. is that um, most of the young people who want to work in, in technology or or uh, other industries. So, and then, uh, but interestingly enough, you, so you wanted to be in the region for for closer to tech, uh, but your first job was in Accenture consulting in Singapore, right? So what, what, was, what was the idea there? Were you just trying to stay in the region? before you found your next gig or uh, you were looking at something specific for the Accenture? I, I believe that Accenture was a good transition given I had been working in financial roles within business development. Uh, in Accenture, I was uh, focusing on M&A strategy, but also, yeah. uh, also technology. So Accenture is a strong mm -hmm. uh, technology player in the region and, and, and in the world. And uh, yeah. that, that gave me visibility on the market and, th and that's how I ended up in my next gig. Uh, who scouted you for your next gig, which was Lazada, what, some 2015, 2016? Um, that was like the peak of Lazada, right? Was This was before the Alibaba merger you joined. That's right. So at, at the time, Lazada was the, the biggest e-commerce player in Southeast Asia. And uh, I, I I had an acquaintance who was working there, uh, having a blast. So uh, I, I actually interviewed first with uh, Alexi, he he eventually became the the country manager for Singapore, and so you started uh, working in Singapore, uh, Lazada, and then how how was your experience uh, with Lazada? Good, bad, no regrets. So um, so I actually I, I focus on the project uh, 
the, the presence in, in Philippines, given it was one of the, okay. the more uh, challenging markets and fastest growing. And I, I would say uh, on one side, it's, it's a very enriching experience to work in a, in a scale up, you know, everything's really very fast. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like selling an extra million dollars is just a matter of weeks. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Um, but of course there, there are challenges. I, I don't, I don't know. Re um, do you recall the Uber, the Uber article about, uh, the toxic environment in the workplace? Yeah, so many of those many of those challenges uh, are, were present in Lazada. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite memory from Lazada? Um, I think, generally speaking, the the social aspect. So there's there's some sort of camaraderie, and you get to hang out a lot with your colleagues. And I guess that's got to be contrasting because your 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 next job was with uh, one of the largest banks in Southeast Asia, CIMB, from 2017 to 2019. Um, and you were doing fintech for for this bank, right? Um, uh, you you were able to launch the first digital bank in Vietnam for CIMB. Uh, you got a bank license in Philippines. Uh, you touched the Alipay and Touch and Go deal, and did a bunch of other internal projects, right? Uh, must have been very different experience from from Lazada. Uh, right. It, it was somewhat of a different experience uh, going into a, a very large company with, at the time, uh, roughly thirty thousand. Uh, workers, staff, but in a way it was similar to past experiences to do uh, business mm. development, market expansion, uh, market entries. Yeah. So, so the, the Vietnam market entry was, was quite interesting because Vietnam, uh, in my opinion, is, is one of the most dynamic markets in Southeast Asia. And on the other hand, uh, Philippines had the great potential, uh, given that existing banks were, were still working on legacy software. So having a digital bank yeah. in, in the Philippines ultimately was, was a very good play by CIMB. Yeah. And then, uh, finally, I guess you, you worked there long enough in corporate might've been a little bit too, too slow paced compared to Lazada. Cause you, uh, eventually in the past, uh, past year or so you, you founded a new company therapy goal, uh, an online therapy provider. So I guess uh, you had the itch and you, you decided, you know, enough of corporate and you want to be a builder. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, I decided that I wanted to try my, my entrepreneur side, uh, focus on something that matters. And I believe that mental health is, is something that really matters and, and hasn't been yet, yet disrupted. Many, so many different industries, logistics, commerce have been tackled by different players. But I, I believe that mental health has, has a lot of space for growth. Uh, so we're going to talk about probably the three topics today, which is power, fintech, and then uh, therapy go, and maybe a little bit of Latin versus Southeast Asia. So for, for the first topic, though, we'll talk about your experience in power, because I, I, I personally am very interested in the space, mm -hmm. so I'm hoping I can learn something. Um, back in 2011, when you were working there, what was the energy landscape like? You know, what, what were the power players focusing on? Uh, and what were they thinking, like the next big thing? for the energy space? So, so in, in LATAM, there were two, two main uh, focuses. One of them was to, to build combined cycle gas power plants, given that uh, gas that had been discovered. So you have a big turbine that burns gas, but, yep. but all, of the, all of the steam and all the heat is recycled in, in, a, in a steamer. 
So you have some yeah. uh, steam power and, and it's, it's, it's the most efficient energy. So if, if you look at Elon Musk doing his assumptions for, for power grids, he usually, he, he, he usually uses as a reference, uh, combined gas cycles. So it's, it's, it's the, it, it's the cleanest thermal, it's the cleanest, most efficient yeah. thermal energy, uh, from, from yeah. burning. Right. And, and the other mm -hmm. one is, is wind. So wind, wind mm -hmm. is all over the place. Uh, most of, most of the tropics have great wind and, uh, wind with this, uh, given it subsidized as well. It's, it's a very profitable setup and it's also great because it also offsets, uh, energy that is dirty. And this was before or after the clean energy boom, because there was this period of time for like a decade where everyone thought clean energy was going to be the big thing. Um, was this towards the tail end of this or? At the time, uh, both, both wind and solar were, were not uh, cost efficient. So they, they in, in a way that they would, uh, the market would embrace them. It requires yeah. subsidies. So, mm -hmm. so, um, with subsidies, it works, but definitely, uh, you're, you're creating market inefficiencies because it's, it's a technology yeah. that cannot naturally compete with existing power. Okay. So it's essentially a, a cost issue. It's just required more demand for the investment to follow and to scale it up. Um, what was the tipping point then? Because it, it seems like solar was a clear, is a clear thesis now. I mean, it's clearly the way forward in the short and medium term. Uh, back then, it wasn't so clear, probably from, like you said, a cost perspective. What allowed it to become so accessible today? So uh, basically, I would say China, given uh, mm. the technology has, has reached cost efficiency and mass production. So, so manufacturing. So, basic, so basically, manufacturing has become so efficient mm. that uh, solar can be embraced. I mean, even, even my, my brother is... Uh, setting up rooftop solar to offset some of the energy yeah. he's he's consuming, um, mm -hmm. but but you also have to realize that solar follows the daylight, so you will still mm -hmm. still need to offset uh, the ramp down of solar with a different technology, and yeah. and usually this will be thermal. So generally speaking, you you cannot have uh, renewable energy without another technology that that uh, balances the, the power, you know? So it, it's either mm -hmm. setting up a battery or having a thermal plant or having a hydro with, with, with a, uh, a hydro that has a, a large dam so you can release, release water when it's mm -hmm. nighttime. And you're, you're talking purely from a renewable standpoint in terms of complementing uh, a technology like solar or what do you mean by thermal? Right, so like I mentioned, uh, gas powered plants, Okay, so something non-renewable. So yeah, they mm. they can be used to to offset uh, renewable. So whenever it's windy, then you you uh, you turn off your your power plants, your thermal power plants, or whenever it's sunny. Mm. But uh, whenever it's not windy and and it's dark, then you you need to offset. This is usually with with the the water that is in in the hydro plant or with the thermal power plant which ideally is, is a combined gas cycle. And I guess we're at, at the current state, you know, of how, how economies and nations are consuming uh, energy and electricity. Um, we're very probably far from having a very 
24 even cycle of purely renewables, right? Uh, we're still for a long time going to need non-renewables to, to supplement renewables, I guess. That's right. So if you look at some, some of the countries uh, around the world, so you have France that have a large uh, nuclear base. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you, had, you have a country like Denmark that has a huge uh, wind power base. So, yeah. so, so uh, I, I believe that in, in order to, to tackle climate change, you need a, a global initiative so that yeah. places like uh, North Africa embrace solar and, uh, mm. and places that, that have uh, the, net, the, the water resources embrace hydro and so forth. Yeah. So essentially every country, it's just like uh, international trade. You have to follow your competitive advantage uh, and build renewable. That's probably the most efficient for, for what you have naturally. That's right. But uh, currently you have a whole bunch of solar and, and wind projects in Europe. And then, and then you have, then you have thermal, thermal uh, power in, in the Middle East and let, let them Southeast Asia. So, so it's, it's, it's a matter of, uh, optimizing this and you can do this with with the carbon credit market oh carbon credit market and uh, i think europe is probably the most mature uh, in terms of a carbon credit market and actual derivatives being traded for this um how come it's not more widely spread um the the reason is that it, it needs to be a global initiative and and you have large fossil fuel producers so you have you have the us you have no. you have russia and you also have China that burns a lot of fossil fuels, so it's it's not in their in their short term interest to to embrace uh, renewable energies and, and pay pay carbon credits for their emissions. But then, why? So why isn't solar even more widely accessible? Is what what's the the current impediment that we're seeing now? Um, it's it's still not it's not as easily. I mean, it's a lot easier than it was 10, 20 years ago. And it's quite accessible, but uh, what what's stopping the further adoption that we're seeing, like you said, in like North Africa or places in other parts of the world? Well, uh, well, on one hand, you have the, the concentration of of uh, you know most most people are in the northern hemisphere. You have uh, people living in Europe, China, Japan, and and if you if you look at the southern hemisphere, it's usually uh, less populated. So you you need to have uh, Met, uh, the supply and the demand, and in, in order to 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 have all these projects uh, set up, you also need access to credit. So the the large solar plants were a large investment. You have lots of private equity going into power because of this reason. Yeah, but ultimately, uh, it's 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 the the rules of engagement are different in every country. So that's that's why yeah. every country has a different outcome. Yeah. So essentially it has to be government driven. It has to be pooled together uh, to help de-risk, also provide credit and liquidity for, for these kind of big infrastructure projects to kind of work out, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Ideally, you need some uh, some sort of supranational uh, oversight so that yeah. you optimize the, the planet's resources in such a way that, that you uh, reduce our carbon footprint. And it's probably why it's extremely hard to innovate in this space then, right? And it's probably why a lot of these big power companies like the IC Power that you worked for uh, have to do M&A and, and looking at other opportunities to acquire instead of building it themselves. Yeah, M&A, is, is, uh, it, it speeds up market presence 
given that a power plant uh, might take uh, one one to six years to set up, it's it's very yeah. much similar to mining. If you want to set up a large mine, it's it's a very long process. And on, mm-hmm. on the other hand, in order for you to to replace the old technologies, you need to actually generate energy uh, so that the old technologies does not need to run anymore. And and usually mm-hmm. that's not the case. So usually the old technology remains uh, given the market growth. So if you look at Southeast Asia or, or Latin, you have fast growing economies that require much yeah. more power. So the old technology is usually not phased out immediately. Yeah. Otherwise, you don't have power to run to to continue growing the economy, right? That's right. Um, so, so from an investor standpoint, when you were doing M and A, um, how often did you actually come across deep tech kind of deals or investment opportunities? Uh, for example, the more sci-fi stuff like you know fusion or geothermal is that a common occurrence for you to come across in the deal flow? Or um, so actually, no, it's it's not it's not common. Um, uh, typically, the the more advanced, the more advanced technologies uh, would be common. So for for emerging markets, um, combined gas cycle is, is a, a relatively advanced technology, and additionally, you have solar and and, and wind power. That's where you would typically yeah. come about. Um, in a way, even though it's it's not very recent, I would say that uh, nuclear is one of the advanced technologies, especially. The latest, it, the, the more recent iterations that are are able to to reap more energy out of the uranium or other other elements. Yeah, and you're specifically talking about fission technology, which is splitting uh, the atoms, which creates an, a huge amount of energy force, which we can harness. Right? Um, is is there a reason why you think nuclear is not widely adopted, or what are the reasons we shouldn't be afraid of nuclear? So, if if there were um, let's say proper controls and, and also let's say if, if there were no terrorism, it would be yeah. more widely adopted for sure. But with the experience of Chernobyl and, and the experience of Fukushima, the, the more advanced economies are, are more reluctant to use nuclear fusion, nuclear fission technology. That's right. Yeah. And, and it's quite, it's quite dangerous. Imagine if you had a large nuclear plant, it uh, right next to Singapore or right next to Bangkok. Uh, yeah, it, it would definitely be a a, a very very big risk. But um, some some countries are able to place their plants in such locations that they're well protected and, and isolated. So so it's it's viable. But if you think of the next iteration of of nuclear uh, fusion, yeah. Although you don't you don't have the the same uh, radioactive risk. Uh, it's it's still a fusion plant, right? So it's it's a yeah. huge generator. You're having like a little a little piece of the sun here on Earth, and and that, yeah. although it, it does not have any, it doesn't have significant radiation. Uh, it's it's still still quite dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, I'm I'm very bullish on fusion, but I I also believe that another another interesting technology might be uh, solar energy, but from space. Ah, from space. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you actually you don't hear that often talked about, right? Right. So I- imagine having uh, either uh, large mirrors in space targeting the, the heat to a, a solar uh, 
receptor here on Earth. That's one possibility. Yeah. Um, also, also you could think of solar panels uh, uh, providing energy for large, huge space stations or or carriers. You know, that that, that would be quite exciting. It, that it almost seems uh, we're definitely entering sci-fi territory. You would, I feel like you would have to. Of course, we have to use fossil fuel to go boom to get to space, uh, build giant starships, and maybe even a moon base for this to even be viable, right? And then you have to set up the infrastructure. And I guess what the main issue would be storage, because we would be powering space mirrors from the sun. How, how do you get the energy back to Earth? Right. So, so actually, the space mirror, uh, it would be it would concentrate solar energy, and mm -hmm. it, it would be able to focus that out back to Earth. So imagine. Uh. Imagine it's 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 nighttime, and, yeah. and you have this space mirror in the dark side, uh, shooting <laughs> sh sh shooting light to to some specific point on Earth. So so the solar plant on Earth yeah. would would be r running at uh twenty four seven. That's that's one example, right? But the concentration right. of the heat you, you get you can also have a a convex mirror. So the the concentration of that are. Uh, solar energy is yeah. is higher than than direct sun, so you're gonna have some special uh, solar panels that that are more efficient and, and generate more energy per per square meter. I I mean, in terms of uh, a feasibility, is this space mirror more feasible than the idea of fusion, or which one's more probabilistic to happen in our lifetime? Uh, I'm bullish on both, but um, okay. g given given the uh, the recent push for space travel, I believe yeah. those technologies will will become cheaper. So it, it might become uh, uh, cheaper to set up this type of technology. The issue is to have have this large uh, mirrors in space. It could potentially be a a weapon. You know, just imagine. You oh, just, true. <laughs> James Bond you, stuff. You, yeah, James Bond stuff. <laughs> That's right. Like Icarus. Yeah. You could destroy a whole city with a solar beam, I guess, technically, right? Yeah, technically, yeah. And so does that mean you're you're betting most of your portfolio on SpaceX or, or where, where are you putting your money today? Uh, right. So so I, I'm still uh, focusing on on current technologies, you know? So, yeah, okay. So current technologies, you, you know, all the, all the large tech here on Earth. Uh, I, <laughs> I believe that, um, I believe that space space requires uh, lots of government contracts for now yeah, so of course it's 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 an industry that is more similar to to defense so you get large mm. government contracts and based on that you develop the technology and then this technology just trickles down to other industries that's that's yeah. how i see it i i, okay. I believe that that all these all these uh companies you know uh jet Bezos, Elon musk Without government contracts, uh, it, it wouldn't be that big of a thing. It would be feasible, but but essentially, you're saying is the private markets is a way to go to keep solving energy. Or I mean, it, it seems like for the case of a fusion reactor, like the the biggest project is I, I believe it's pronounced ITER, I T E R. Um, that's many multinational com companies investing billions across uh, decades, actually, right? So the reactor is expected to go in online. Assuming they can solve all the problems with like 2040 or something, I forget. But um, so, is do you think specifically these deep tech needs to be government led, or do you think private can actually find a way to uh, first principles it 
and find some ways to make it more feasible, like basically like Elon Musk, right? Making it more accessible uh, to actually get commercialize it, right? Or, or do you think, you know, this is really needs to be still government for a long time? Right. So, so yeah, and it, well, actually Elon Musk is, is a good example. You, you basically need a, yeah. a very, um, let's say aggressive entrepreneur that, that has, has a clear roadmap, but ultimately yeah. you do need the government money. If you look at Tesla yeah. and, and SpaceX, they're taking tons of government money. So, yeah. uh, so ultimately, yeah, it's a government play. And I believe, uh, ITER is definitely the way it's a multinational effort and, yeah. uh, it's just a matter of making the technology work, uh, or potentially exploring other ways to to reach fusion, other than the tomahawk. Yeah. For 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 example, uh, ITER. I don't know. It feels that like fusion is very early on in a cycle. You know, if you look at the fossil fuel industry, specifically like oil, I mean, it's existed for 167 years. Assuming you know you're looking at the first commercial use was kerosene, right? Kerosene was the real reason why it took off, and then the first crude oil struck in Pennsylvania in 1859 uh, for Seneca Oil Company, right? Edward Drake. So you, you had supply of the, the fuel and then you had the commercial commercialization. Then it's just a matter of kind of putting it together, but it still took 167 years to, to see where we are. And if you think about thermal, I mean, sorry, if you think about fusion, um, it's still, I don't know, roughly 80 years, if you want to say from early 40s of research to practical implementation of, of, of th- uh, nuclear bombs till now. Um, so do, do you think we do you think we're going to, Technology is allowing for a faster cycle, like we'll see in the next 30 years for real, or do we still need to wait 100, 150 years for this to actually you know, become real and mature? Well, definitely uh, technology is adopting much faster. You know, like if, yeah. if you think about, think about parents, when our parents were born, uh, the, the, there was no internet, there were, there were no cell phones, yeah. Yeah. you know, there, 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 there were no, uh, I'm not sure, but there, there might not have been lithium-ion uh, batteries. Well, and, uh, uh, l- let me ask you what 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 do you what do you know? I mean, you're a history guy because every time we meet, you always give me some great history stories. Uh, what happened a hundred years ago? Do you know what happened a hundred years ago? Yeah, what, what was like what, some big events that happened a hundred years ago? Well, roughly around a hundred years ago, not exactly hundred yeah. years ago, you had uh, yeah World War, World War One, you had uh, yep. Sp- the Spanish flu, yeah, you had the uh, the, the um, you had a, a, a large uh, shift in geopolitical power. So, mm-hmm. so if you think of it, prior to World War One, you had these guys called the Ottoman Empire, and back then they were, yeah. I mean, I mean, huge. way back they were they were huge, right? But now, yeah, now whenever whenever you think of that, it's just it's just uh, Turkey, right? And Turkey's yeah, small small country now. It's it's a relatively small country, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you, you have anything to share. How, how was Southeast Asia well, 100 years ago? Well, 100 years ago, I'm not too sure about that'd be 1921. I mean, the national identities weren't even formed of each country, right? It was all colonies. Um, but like, I mean, like imagining the world of how the oil complex was started, right? Back then, you know, the Russian, Russia had a famine, 5 million people died. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt contracted polio. Hitler became a chairman of the Nazi party. Mao Zedong created the Chinese Communist Party, right? And these are all very, very relevant issues today. And this is just when, you know, kerosene was just being implemented. Uh, well, I mean, more commercialized, I guess, before that. It had 50 years prior before that to, you know, kerosene and moving on to actual burning it and using it for cars and whatnot, right? So, um, 
I don't know. I, I think it's it's fair to say, like you said, you know, within a hundred years, the world changes so fast, and um, who knows? You know, maybe maybe really in 20, 30 years, because the joke in fusion is that it's always thirty years away. No matter what, you know, every every thirty years will always be thirty years away. But uh, uh, maybe you know, by by the time we hit, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 years of doing fusion, maybe we'll have actually really solved it. Right, right. And, and now nowadays, also you can do some some research uh, using supercomputers and artificial intelligence. Mm, yeah. So you can actually uh, predict outco- outcomes without actually building building the plant. You know, like in the past, you would have to build a prototype and then see how it goes, like for, for yeah. early solar or early nuclear and so, such. But nowadays, you can just run a model and uh, simulate it, and, and it gives you a rough estimate. Yeah. So, so if you were to have kids now, would you recommend them to continue studying STEM, investing in STEM? Back then, for us, it would have been, oh, go do finance. But maybe we're at the tail end of that, right? So now technology kind of made sense. Uh, what, what, what would you do? For, what would you recommend for your kids? Uh, well, I, I guess... There, there are two sides, right? I, if if they're more STEM inclined, I would definitely uh, suggest something uh, related to the future. So this this could be with robotics, or it could be with environmentalism. Mm-hmm. And and if they're if they're more of a uh, non STEM person, I would probably uh, ask them to get in touch with you and and get acquainted <laughs> with the world of of uh, communications. You know, like nowadays, yeah. it's all about being a, an influencer, being a communicator, uh, creating a yeah. brand. And, and I think that's, that's here to stay for at least for a, a few years. For sure. I mean, you could even see that influ- influence, uh, you know, idea into you know, how we do commerce online interactions and, and buying. All the lines are blurring now, right? So it's, it's a very interesting, bold new future we're looking at. Um, but the last, the last question for energy then, you know, if you're still, if you were still in energy investments or maybe for your friends, you know, what are they looking at now? What are they investing in? So uh, in, in emerging markets, there's still space to, to build more uh, gas power plants and, and also, yeah. also wind, wind and solar. And if, yeah. if you're in a, in a market that is highly developed, like if you, if you look at uh, the developed countries in Europe, they're actually, they're actually using less energy. So, so given they're using less energy, it's, it's not a matter about uh, building new power plants, but increasing efficiency of existing assets. That's why smart cities are so important. You know, energy, energy efficiency is important. So, mm-hmm. so I, I would say if you're in a, in a more uh, developed market, lower energy consumption. It's all about efficiency. It's all about having yeah. a smart city, about about uh, better using existing energy. But if you're in a market such yeah. as like in the Indonesia or or Nigeria, it's it's all about uh, thermal. So it's a very good point. So essentially you you for this type of industry, you can't really skip steps. Um, but what you can do is use technology to make the the current existing investment even more efficient and how you consume it. Right, so the it's kind of like a a hack in the short term until the rest of technology can be adopted and spread where you know it's more renewable going forward. That's right. Cool. So let's uh, move on to fintech in Asia. You joined CMB back in 2017. Do you you know what the fintech landscape was like? What was it like before you joined, and what was it like when you were working there? Right. So b- before I joined, I was aware that uh, lending and payments were huge, yeah. and uh, once it once I joined, I realized that 
most of the players were, were competing to, to, uh, cover the payment space. So mm. whoever controls payments controls, controls the, the means of payment. So you have the Alipay, you have WePay, and, yeah. uh, you have so many players in Southeast Asia uh, going for this. You have, uh, Grab, Grab Pay. Yeah. So payment was all the rage. Uh, but ultimately if you want to, if you want to go big, you need to monetize even further. So how to monetize even further, you, you, you can do uh, merchant, merchant deals, you know, monetize through merchants and also, uh, monetize through, through lending. Yeah. So you have, you have pay letter schemes, you have, uh, financing merchants based on their e-wallet transaction and so forth. Essentially what you're saying is it's probably bundling up whatever's in the ecosystem that are, that have like, it's kind of fragmented in terms of different technologies. Um, and these big banks or big financial players or anyone who has probably a big user base are trying to somehow put them all together on one, one centralized platform for finance or, or what, what are you thinking? Does, is this is going to consolidate or does it kind of remain fragmented, but in the same flavor where there's many different kind of uh, features getting put together, but maybe different for every country. So uh, I believe that uh, different countries are at different s- stages of maturity and, yeah. uh, and, and, and also their network effects. So whoever, whoever has the most network effects will become uh, more efficient and, and, ultimately grow faster. So I, I believe that's why GrabPay has been so successful. You, you have them, like whenever you think of food and, and you live in Southeast Asia, you just order food with Grab. You need a ride, you do the same. And, yeah. uh, and, and you, you, you go to a store, you pay with a QR payment using GrabPay. So in, in a way, um, they have been doing a great job, but, but also, uh, you have, you have the less affluent, affluent population. So yeah. for some people, it's just, just a matter of, of having a bank account. So, um, you'd, you'd be surprised with how many people do not even have a bank account. Right. So, yeah. so, um, in a way, in a way, CIMB went for that to, okay. to, uh, to provide bank accounts for, for the, the largest amount of people, you know, but, but also, yeah. um, simplifying life, you know, you, you just need to need to pay your bills you do it on your phone and you think of it 10 years ago that was unheard of in, in an emerging market yeah. and then if you look at the higher end of the of the spectrum like for instance you have lots of affluent people living in, in singapore malaysia thailand uh they need they need a uh, more sophisticated asset management so then you mm. have like you have you have like players like like Mufax and and asset asset management. If you look at all, all the companies that provide trading support, either yeah. uh, traditional traditional assets or even crypto, uh, mm-hmm. once they IPO, they, they do amazing. I, I don't know if you followed yeah. the Robinhood IPO. Yes, yes, I or, did. Or or Binance. Yeah, yeah, Binance. Yeah, uh, but but Binance in the crypto world, you know, there's a, 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 a section. You know, there's a some group of people who don't trust it, I guess you could say, because the, the ties to back to China. Um, but uh, I guess that's a different story. Well, I, I mean, if, if you follow the money, uh, most money yeah. has, has some sort of tied to China or, 
for the U.S. That's a good that's, point. That's yeah. where those are the yeah. those are the countries that that have most assets. And and t- and talking about the unbanked population, which is probably a huge uh, fintech opportunity. You're saying CIMB is kind of going for that opportunity. Uh, was that related to uh, your your launching a digital bank in Vietnam and getting a license in the Philippines, or what was that about? Yeah, that's right. So um, uh, lots of unbanked in, in both of those countries. So uh, although those two countries are quite different, uh, Vietnamese yeah. people have a culture of, of um, saving a lot. So everybody, yeah. everybody had stashes of, of cash laying around <laughs> in their house, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and whenever, whenever somebody needs, needs to buy a house. So let's say, uh, your nephew needs to buy a house. Um, the, the, the family members would probably lend the money so they, they could just buy yeah. the house. And so, so part of the play was to, to get that money out, out of the homes into the bank. So providing mm-hmm. competitive competitive rates, um, so that so that people um, put their money in the bank. But then then you have places like Philippines where savings rates are are lower. It's it's, uh, it's a culture that is closer to the U.S. So it's it's more about uh, consumerism and and living now. So for for mm-hmm. those countries, it, it was more more of a matter of just. Uh, creating the the habit of saving, and if you look yeah. at Philippines, most people save. Uh, I mean, l- a lot of people save through through insurance. They they just uh, provide payments to insurance, and the, the insurance is is their way of uh, um, investing, and and not really the banks. And that's that's quite quite interesting. It's, it's actually not not that uh, common, you know that. Insurance yeah. companies have have more more trust than, and and uh, receive more payments, and also in the, in the Philippines, people are used to prepay for stuff. So if you want if you want to buy an apartment, you would usually start paying in advance, way way before it actually exists. You know, you you pay for four years, and then you get the key. Oh, so, um, well, that's interesting because I guess in. Malaysia, you only start paying once you get the key, right? And I think then, I mean, of course, you get the loan set up beforehand, the facility set up, but I think the the interest payments start only ticking once you uh, are handed the key. That's a, that's a quite a very big difference. Why why is that the case? Well, part of the case is is it's because the the lending market is is not that efficient, and and also um, mm. also uh, families are are looking to save money. So if if you if you pay ahead. Usually, you get a bit better deal. Okay. So it's, it's just a different approach. Yeah, I mean, most yeah. most people, most people you would you would know, they they would just go for a mortgage and buy a house. But uh, like I mentioned, in, yeah, in the Philippines, you would just pay in advance, and and then you would get a house. I mean, that that's one of the more widespread mechanisms. And like I mentioned, in, in Vietnam, it would be pretty yeah pretty common for your relatives to lend you the money, or if yeah. if you get a mortgage. You would try to just pay it out quickly in mm. two or three years, if possible, uh, to avoid yeah. a, a very high interest rates. I mean, it feels very similar to the Chinese mentality 
um, from what I from, I from what I understand anecdotally, you know, the, this this taste of holding debt, trying to pay up as cash as much as much as possible, so you don't pay more money. Um, and typically, of course, the savings rate are high enough where you know wealth transfers and that kind of mechanism from parents to children. Uh, so it seems yeah, some similar cultures from from what I understand. Um, that that being said, so you know, with CMB launching and all these big financial institutions that are incumbent, are they able to compete with you know the grab banks and the shoppy banks? Of Southeast Asia, or or how is this going to turn out in terms of do they end up fighting each other and this becomes fragmented? Do they end up working together and there's you know becomes like an olig oligopoly or something? Or how how do you see this playing out with you know slow tech? Can they innovate or they can't innovate? And do you think these kind of big unicorns are going to take everything, or are they somehow just going to end up still being fragmented like how we've always known it? So um, speaking in context of of emerging markets in uh, yeah. Southeast Asia. I believe that ultimately it, it will be more about partnerships. So, so the large, the large uh, incumbents, they will, they will partner ideally with the fast moving companies. So if, if you yeah. look at CMB, CMB had a, a partnership with Alipay. So that, that, yeah. that was, that was one, one of those things, you know? So I, I believe that's the way because the, the, the fintechs or the tech companies they, they typically don't have the biking, the banking licenses and, yeah. um, and also they, they're, they're not willing to, to allocate as, as many assets. So, so it's better to, for the FinTech to, to write an existing assets from, from incumbents. So, so for instance, if you have, you have a, a ping ad or you have a, you have a Alibaba, you would probably want to allocate, uh, the, the bank assets. Well, it's interesting you say that because Shopee has their bank license in most countries. I think Grab does too. There are certain countries where I believe these two big players are struggling, which depends on the nature of your ability to sway um, regulators in that specific country and relationships that you have, uh, which is one unique facet about Southeast Asia. Um, so it's, and if they have the same user base as a bank, you know, what, what's the incentive if you have your own license to actually use that infrastructure? Um, especially if you can innovate technology, I think the banks probably are finding it harder to innovate. And I'm sure like the Alibaba CIMB deal, you know, it's, it took forever to roll out features that would have taken, you know, a month or two months, taken like six months, right. You know, uh, integrating the touch, you know, the toll card to the actual wallet, you know, this is very slow. It just seems like if you have your own license, it makes sense to compete or is there something else blocking that? So uh, I also believe there's a spectrum of services. So if, if it's a, a, uh, one-time thing with a, with a, a small amount of currency, you you probably do it with the FinTech, right? So for instance, yeah. you, you go and buy a burger and it's, um, $5, you, you want to think it twice. But yeah. if, if I, if I tell you to, to, uh, allocate your life savings, your pension in, in a, in a new FinTech, that's very like unlikely to happen. So that's, that's where, where mm. banks will, mm. will remain relevant. Banks will remain relevant in, in, uh, you know, in, in re, re, like handling, um, assets in general, uh, savings. Like if you want to have a large stash, you probably put it in a bank. You will not yeah. give, uh, you will not save, let's say, uh, half a million dollars of your money in, in, uh, in grab. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Is that actual regulation or brand or both? No, uh, 
Yeah, it's it, it's it's probably both. It's probably both. Oh, yeah. But my my point being that that um, even even if the the technology companies are fast moving and, and highly efficient, it will take yeah. them a while to to provide the the whole uh, list of services that banks do. Yeah. And so, no, knowing what you know of being an insider in this space, do you think that? For example, Grab after their pipe deal, and you know Shopee with the monster that Garena has, you know, and also I guess uh, Shopee is becoming profitable in itself. You know, they have very good cash cows. Uh, so Grab has ten billion after the SPAC deal. Is that enough capital to build out a financial institution to be competitive with the incumbent or to, and to work with them, um, or, or do you think that this is not enough money to be successful in the finance space? And um, what do you think? I think that they will need to to uh, leverage somehow. Oh, yeah. So, so they would uh, definitely have to take deposits and and have yeah. all, all the all the risk management that traditional financial institutions have. Uh, given given that, oftentimes they they're not as as rigorous. You know, you have the the Basel Accords, and you have the uh, mm. Capital capital adequacy and so forth. Yeah. So, so, so I, I I believe that 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 will take some time. So do you do you think? I mean, and this is still early days. This is still you know, assuming this uh, these kind of players grab Shopee, start working with local infrastructure and banks. Uh, this is not stopping other big players from like China or other parts of the region to come in, right? So it seems like it could get very. Uh, competitive going forward, do you believe this to be the case that somehow you know more Chinese money will come down, or other interests from abroad will come in the space as well? Yeah. So as the space becomes more attractive and the the middle class in, in these countries grow, there will be definitely space. Um, I, I believe that initially uh, competitors will will just slug it out, but ultimately there will yeah. be a, a few winner a few winners, or yeah. and and those that that. Uh, some some sort of partnership to to survive will do so. You know, if, yeah. if you're backed by by Tencent or Alibaba, uh, your chances of survival are are much much higher. And 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 they they also <laughs> and, and and they also need you. You know, they need you for your license yeah. or they need you for your market knowledge or for your assets. So I think that's what everyone said so uh, with Lazada maybe a few years back, right? Right, right. But uh, it's definitely. Exciting times, very exciting times. Yeah. With, with that in mind, for the last question of this topic, uh, if you're investing or building in a space specifically for fintech, what would you be building now? Um, so I, I would be focusing on, I, I, I would try to plug in to to one of these large ecosystems. So, mm-hmm. um, for instance, you, you could focus on on lending for e-commerce mer- merchants. That that might be an interesting space. Or, yeah. or another interesting space might be to to enable uh, offline businesses. So you use go walk around with your with your Amazon wallet, and you just purchase in a little a uh, little store in some uh, village. You know, so just just connecting the offline with online. Great. So let's uh, let's talk about uh, Therapy Go, where you currently co-founded this company. Uh, what's the elevator pitch for Therapy Go? Right. So, uh, therapy go. We want to democratize uh, mental health for for uh, people of color, uh, f- focusing on on Hispanics first. 
we're focusing on on Latin America and North America at the time, but uh, that yeah. doesn't uh, take away that we have we have some clients even in in Japan. Oh wow! Okay. Um, we're we're doing this with with direct to customer, but we also have partnerships with corporates to provide them uh, wellness programs, and um, and, and yeah. another another feature we're working on is to have to make it a, a SaaS enabled marketplace. So our, our dream is that uh, most most therapists they have a powerful tool to provide a better service to their existing and future customers, and and out of those we're able to to source the best talent for for those uh, who need a special standard. So in order to provide services to corporates and, and, and also, um, affluent, affluent audiences. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the way that this model has been deployed, uh, to great success in the U S and I think many countries followed was, uh, corporates being the main kind of way to grow the company. Um, with that in mind, you know, it seems like you have some, some similar aspects to this. Uh, what exactly is the biggest pain point this model is solving for? Like what, what value are you creating that was missing before or that, that you're kind of innovating now? Uh, right. So, so the value for, for the corporate, uh, it's, it's to have a, a productive, um, engaged, um, you know, staff given that, um, okay. like in, in recent times, um, turnover is so high, you know, like when, yeah. you know, if a few decades ago, you would just join a company and you would probably work at least 10 years in a company. And, and yeah. even if you look at, um, uh, societies such as Japan, uh, sometimes people work just their whole careers in, in one company. Right. Uh, so yeah. now turnover is so high and, and, uh, people are, are more uh, worried about their careers than, than their companies. So, yeah. So we believe that we can, we can, uh, increase employee engagement, uh, lower turnover and uh increased productivity so that's that's for the that's for the corporate if you focus on on the actual individual it, it's it's about it's about having having the the, the right mindset uh being f- for people to fulfill their potential you know if, if you're a person that is uh, suffering from depression uh it's it's very difficult to, for, for you to to reach your full potential you know? like it, it's it's a matter about um being being productive and being in the right mindset what's what's the difference between somebody let's say somebody who grew up in, in denmark or netherlands and and somebody that grew up in in the philippines it's it's yeah. it's about opportunity it's about mindset access to personal growth so um, traditionally in, in the U S, uh, these services have, have been provided typically to white Americans. But if you, if you look at, uh, minorities, so African-Americans, Hispanics, typically they have not access, uh, as much to mental health services. And, uh, and uh, we believe that, that by providing services to these populations, uh, we can uh, level the playing field. That's a very interesting point. 
especially vis-a-vis the the minorities, and I never really thought about it. And I think probably one of the biggest criticisms you probably hear from I don't know investors or or critics is uh, it's, there's got to be a cultural barrier that you have to overcome. Like these cultures of Latino cultures or even Asian cultures, there's a stigma, you know, of, of needing to see professional help. People automatically box you in as you know weak or um, you know it's it's not normal, right? It's do you do you engage this these days, or that's not so much of a problem now? Uh, it's definitely a problem. So if just just uh, imagine yourself having a chat with your tiger mom, hey mom, uh, I'm depressed. <laughs> uh, yeah. She'll probably be like, I, I didn't raise uh, any, any weakling, <laughs> or or if if you're if, if or if you're uh, a, a Latino Latino dude talking to your to your dad, you know, hey dad, I'm depressed. You'd be like, man, man up, you know. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's definitely it's, it's definitely an issue. There's a, there's a stigma, but that's that's what makes it interesting. Uh, given these segments that are underserved, uh, yeah. we believe that that uh, uh, the way to to tackle it is to make it make it cool and make it engaging. You know, like. Mm. It's it's like uh, you know um, J Lo was having marital problems, so yeah. I mean, if you're having marital problems, it's cool, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Or, or Sofia Vergara, she yeah. she was uh, depressed when she was a teenager. Uh, I look at her now, you know, it's like oh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool okay. to be to be yeah. a depressed teenager now, you know. You know what I mean? So it's uh, it's yeah. it's about breaking the stigma. And and I, yeah. I think uh, with, with lots of high-profile people, uh, you know, showing their vulnerability. So you, you have uh, you have Michael Phelps, you have uh, Simona Biles, and you have yeah. a whole bunch of other high-profile figures. You have uh, Demi Lovato, you have Britney Spears. So so I believe uh, people are are understanding that it's it's perfectly normal. You know, like not not everybody's at their hundred percent all the time, and it's, yeah. it's it's okay to to get out. You know, I mean, if if my back is sore, I would go get a massage, and I wouldn't say you know yeah. I'm oh, I'm weak. You're weak. <laughs> it's it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. straight straight straightforward. You know, or if yeah. if my knee hurts, uh, I'll probably go see the doctor. You know, it's it's, it's just yeah. a matter about, about quality of life and reaching your your potential as, as a human being. In a sense, uh, it's almost to what you speak to this. It's signaling for a good cause and through influence, right? So, and it probably makes sense for for your marketing strategy to use people of influence to kind of change the perception and uh, behaviors to to accept it. And um, I guess a tricky part, though, is for the consumer side. Uh, how would you measure? performance of you doing a good job on the B2B side, on the client side of big companies, uh, you probably would look to retention and, you know, employee surveys, but how, how could you do this for, for the customer side? That's you know, direct to consumer. Right. So for direct to consumer, it, it's, it's a matter about, of, of, uh, using, using data. So, uh, yeah. we provide balls that provide, uh, satisfaction, uh, comments, you know, so we, we question like NPS our, yeah, at basically NPS, and we we want to make yeah. sure that that all therapists are of quality, and and not only 
not only uh, technically proficient, but also uh, that they provide empathy and yeah. and uh, 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 they provide an environment of trust and, a, I guess, of love in a way so that um, yeah. people that are vulnerable can grow. Uh, we we uh, ensure that we, we touch point even after their therapy is over just to just to make sure everything's all right you know um we provide content so that they uh, are always uh, engaged mailing we we also have some uh, podcasts with, i mean with, mm. with valuable information so it's it's all about bird building community i believe uh, okay so so once once this community grows and people people notice that uh, more people are are in better shape. We believe that there will be a, a multiplier effect, and and like you said, right? Yeah. Uh, if we focus on on minorities, uh, the way to do this is is different, you know. Because if, if yeah. you think of it, uh, uh, several minority groups they're not as individualistic. So it's it's yeah. not uh, uh, that most people in the U.S. soon will be people of color. Yeah. I think that's a fascinating point. Um, if you if you really think about health holistically, uh, this is ton, a tiny slice of it. And if you can really own this niche, um, you know, it, it lends to huge value creation across all all aspects of mental health and well being. Uh, you, you, I mean, we know, like for example, the, the combat comms and the headspaces are huge in itself. You see them branching off into other kind of content and other kind of aspects of you know wellness and it seems that you know if you can get this kind of and how, how does it work so you have like a marketplace so you have uh, curated uh, psychologists psychiatrists on one side and you match them to people looking for a session is that the, is the extent of the product as of now or do you actually build actual courses and the corporates have the whole program built out or what does it look like so as of now as of now it's it's the matching we we have curated therapists okay and we, we match yeah. them with with the with the with the client. Uh, in this case, it could be yeah. a, a an employee from from a corporate, or it could be just somebody that drops by. But uh, we want to work towards also providing courses and also focusing on on a holistic approach. You know? So, I mean, if if you're um, <clears throat> if you're depressed, um, it, there might be external factors. You know. It, you you might be uh, binge eating, you might be binge drinking, it's or you might have a sedentary lifestyle. So all, all of these points yeah. are related. So we we want to approach it holistically. It's not about yeah uh, just just giving advice and just uh, you know pr- providing uh, the traditional approach. You know, like tell me yeah. a little bit more about your relationship with your father. You know, it's it's more about yeah. understanding yeah. understanding your your. Uh, you have 360, you know, like, who are yeah. you as a human being? Who are important to you? What do you do? You know, and yeah. like, you, you'd be surprised with uh, the, the causes of, of different, different problems. Yeah. Like, for, for instance, yeah. obesity, obesity is, is, is not a problem associated with, with just, with just eating. It's, it's a, it's a problem associated with, with also wealth. You know, if you're, yeah. If you're not wealthy enough, uh, you probably cannot be picky about what you eat, and if, yeah. I guess you you need more fast food. But then, also, if you're not wealthy, uh, 
the life is, is not so rosy. You have different challenges yeah. in, in your life and you want to get ahead. And, you, and, and oftentimes these problems um, are, are carried on from one generation to the next, you know. So, so for instance, if, yeah. if you grow up without a father and then uh, once, once you're, you are a father, what's your role as a father and so forth, you know. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, I'm, I'm a pretty big avid consumer of apps, subscription apps specifically in the space. I'm a paid user for many things from MyFitnessPal. I tried to lose it. I'm currently trying out Noom. I'm Charlie. Uh, I've tried out a lot of other things that I paid for. And what's very interesting is that I feel that all of these never satisfy fully everything you needed. And the way this kind of industry converges is this, you kind of need to put in coaching therapy, wellness, all together with actual physical touch points as like a reg- you would have a regular coach. So if you're you know, doing sports or something, you have really high interactions. You could do it remotely with technology now, but you kind of need that accountability T- tied in with the learning like you see from Noom, tied with the tracking that you see from MyFitnessPal. And I, it, it kind of seems interesting that, you know, I, I kind of don't like to say this, but it seems like a perfect blitz skill opportunity where you just raise a ton of money build a beachhead of a big users, but then you try to wrap it up into kind of one ecosystem, kind of like a, a super app for health, which I mean, yeah. But I mean, I think from the perspective of solving value in this space with technology, me being a user, I think that's how I, I would see it. Do you, do you think that kind of makes sense or no? Yeah, definitely. So if you look at large insurance providers, they all uh, mm. launch their lifestyle apps. So you have AIA, you have Allianz, yeah. you have Zurich. They launched their lifestyle apps and it's, it's all about, uh, having a healthy, uh, life, you know, like if, if you, if you eat healthily or if you exercise or if you follow, um, uh, meditation and sleep, like you, you can even get, uh, lower premiums from, from insurance. So it's a win-win, man, you know, you, if, if, you, if you have, do you want to give healthy, information to the insurance? Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's, that's the deal, you know, but yeah, what's, what's yeah. your alternative? You, you, you want to give your information to, to one of the big techs also. I mean, uh, yeah, I recently already, read we already that, do, right? Yeah, we already do. And, um, and, uh, uh, more so, uh, every, every year, uh, big tech is, is, uh, using more of our information, you know, so that whatever you have in your cloud is being used by, by big tech. So I guess it's inevitable. Unless you, you buy one, one of those old uh, Nokia phones. Yeah. Um, last question about Therapy Go before we move to the last section. Um, how do you think about sizing the market? It, it almost seems it's a combination of old world market comparables, but it's almost a new way of solving it with new technologies. So how, how do you go about thinking, you know, my, my current addressable market versus the total market that I could eventually get to? Right. So... Um, Definitely the starting point is to focus on the addressable market and the, I guess, the old school way of doing it. Uh, how many people yeah, are, minorities are, for you, right? Yeah. So how many people need, need the service? How many people, um, what, what's a typical intervention? So typically, yeah. uh, between six to 10 sessions would, would have a, a significant impact on most people. If you have yeah. a, a super severe issue, like for instance, if you're uh, undergoing chemotherapy or uh, you have a severe depression or self-esteem issues, it might go longer. And if you have like a, you had a, 
a small mishap with your with your uh, partner, then um, yeah. it might be less. Yeah. So that's something we do. But if you focus on the extended market, so for insurance companies, there's a lot of space uh, by by providing them information on 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 their patients, on how they're behaving, whether they're having healthy lifestyles, whether they have the right mindset and, and they're uh, thriving. Uh, there's a lot yeah. of value in that information. Uh, there's a lot of value in educating, providing uh, advice to people, uh, courses, content, eBooks. So, so I, I it's like yeah. you said, right? I think it's an evolving market. Um, it, it's it's kind of like like uh, fintechs going back a step. You know, like what's what's a yeah. successful fintech? Is it just just payments? Then you have you have yeah, uh, okay. you have uh, you have companies such as Ping Ed. That created an, an amazing, amazing ecosystem and insurance. Yeah. Um, so, so I think ultimately that's that's the road. You would probably have some large, large tech plugging in a whole bunch of different uh, providers, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think that's where it's going. At so ultimately, the big names will will uh, uh, enter the market, you know, or expand their presence in the market. Yeah, the Amazons, Facebooks, the Googles, the Alibabas, the Ping Ants. Yeah, great. Okay, so for the last section, um, what are the biggest differences between Latin and Asia that you've been, now that you've been working for more than a year in Latin and US and Asia, uh, what are the big differences between the two East versus West kind of worlds? Right. So... I mean, there are lots of similarities and lots of differences. I would say that the similarities are on the side of how society is structured. You know, you have a, a small upper class, a uh, fast-growing middle class, and you have a large uh, a part of the population that that will remain uh, relatively poor, at least for global standards. So that, those are some similarities. Of course, there are some uh, just room for improvement for different um services, you know, education, healthcare. So there's lots of potential there for growth. Um, mm. Some of the big differences have to do with, um, with the uh, long-term vision. So typically in Asia, everything has a very long-term approach. You know, you, yeah. for instance, if, if you look at how, how China uh, plans its Silk Road and its long-term policy, <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah. that, that road is being paved to last a hundred years, you know, but, mm-hmm. um, if, if you look at Latam, it's, it depends on, on the government that is in place. So every four to five years, uh, most likely you have a completely different government with a completely different party. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you need to, uh, make the best out of that period because you, 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 mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to happen with the next government. So that, that's a so very short term. Big- yeah. So, for instance, if you look at Singapore, Singapore has only had uh, one party ruling ever since it became <laughs> yeah. independent. And uh, yes. if you look at Mal- Malaysia, that, that was the case until recently. But yeah. to some extent, it was it was more of a, uh, a, a family feud. You know, like actually, actually, both, <laughs> yeah, both sides true. were ori- ori- originally the, s- the same party, right? So, yeah, so correct. in a way, um, in in a way, the the, the North Star is there, and there's a long-term approach, True. and and that's yeah. why uh, Southeast Asian countries, you know, like e- even if you have a bad year, 
you know that next year is going to be okay. Uh, with yeah. with Latam, with Latam, if if you get a, a precedent that has uh, policies that are not market friendly, then uh, you might have some drastic change. Of course, you know, and uh, yeah. this has been the case for, uh, for instance, Argentina. It has been the case for Bolivia. Um, uh, lately, it appears to be the case for Peru, uh, and so forth. Right. I think that's a big difference. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I as an entrepreneur, that, uh, I was just going to say, I mean, as an entrepreneur, like that must be very hard for you to create long-term value. How do you go about talking? Th I mean, thinking about it, executing it, and also telling a story to, to investors or your customers. Yes. Uh, it's definitely a challenge, but uh, that's why it's important to, to have a, a regional play. So if you, if you yeah. look at a few of the unicorns in, in Latin, you have uh, Rappi. Rappi is, is basically yeah. a a. Uh, it's kind of like a grab without the right hailing. And uh, <laughs> and 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 then then you have you have uh, some of those unicorns that are in, in segments that are just too profitable. So, for instance, you have Nubank in Brazil. Uh, yeah. They they're basically in the market that is controlled by three large banks, and they provide. Yeah. Uh, um, somewhat better customer service, so so that's that's how they they have been driving, but it, a large part of it has to do with how the market is set up. So uh, interest rates in, in in Brazil are just so high; they're they can reach two hundred percent per year. If you look yeah. at um, a country like Cambodia or Laos, they would not allow that. They would they would yeah. uh, cap interest rates. I believe that most of Southeast Asian countries cap interest rates at around 25%. Uh, mm. So, so yeah, that's, that's part of the reason. So yeah, so basically uh, focus on a, on a very inefficient segment of the market or uh, have an international play and uh, build on that narrative. So LATAM, mm. LATAM has a lot of opportunity. It's, I, I would say it's, it's the, one of the, the sexiest markets for venture capital. Uh, given yeah. that it's it's somewhat behind in in uh, different different uh, industries, yeah, um, I guess you know, and it's it's very interesting. We kind of see regional players in Southeast Asia, like Shopee, now have entered Latin America. So we see even further, you know, border crossing and ideas going to be shared even further. Um, so I hope that you find you know a huge success with Terapigo, and we can see you back in Asia soon. No, I, actually, I, I've been talking to different people, and and there some some people ask me. So, when are you opening uh, an Asia, you know, setup, yeah. or, or you know, actually, those services would be interesting here. You know, so I, I think once our our uh, SaaS marketplace is in place and it's uh, more developed, um, it it would be easier to to roll out uh, new countries. So for sure. Yeah. So so I, I I see it in the, in the future. Uh, as we mentioned, right, uh, patients in general have have not been that open to uh, mental health services. But if you if you see yeah. it more as as overall uh, holistic wellness, I think yeah. uh, people will definitely embrace it. You know, like yeah. if 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 you tell a, a a Chinese person, you know, mental health will make you twenty percent richer, they'll be like, I'm gay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a very good way to to market it. Um, I mean, there are health players 
doing something similar to what you're doing. But my my personal take is that it's more of this, you know, try to get rich quick scheme because funding was really big in the space in the US. And I'm not sure. I I, I mean, I don't know the players that well, but it's just my take. Uh, but my, my feeling is, you know, it's more of monetary incentives that they're looking for versus actual holistic value creation of, uh, you know, driving better society forward and this kind of thing. So, you know, I look forward to hopefully seeing, you know, you, you build your, you know, big moat in Latin America and expand globally one day. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, yeah. it's been a, a great, a great call. Uh, so uh, I'll keep you posted. Yeah. So before we wrap up anything we want to plug, uh, for therapy go or anything you're doing or any final comments, um, just uh, if if you're a a savvy investor and want to focus on the Hispanic market in the U.S. and Latin America, um, you can reach me at Walter at TherapyGo.com. Perfect. And uh, uh, if you're interested in angels, I know a bunch of them who would love to get an allocation if they're bullish on the market. So so let me know. Great. Let, let, okay. Let's take this offline. Right. Cheers. Thanks, Walter. Good call. Hey listeners, thank you for listening to Walter's episode. If you enjoyed the content or learned something new, please share it with your friends or family who could benefit and give us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. So what do we learn today? Innovation in energy markets seem impossibly hard, just like any deep tech problem. However, there are glimmers of hope. We definitely do need more Elon Musks of the world, but it's never straightforward as you can never fully disrupt old technology specifically for energy right away due to continuous growth of markets and along with tricky capital formation barriers. If you did like the energy section, we will be talking to an energy venture capitalist in the near future as well. That being said, with the advent of information technology, mobile adoption, and compute power, I'm definitely more bullish on this space than before. In terms of fintech in Southeast Asia, it seems we're just at the tip of the iceberg of value to be created in Southeast Asia. So it stands for anyone to benefit whether they are investing or building in the space. We recorded this episode a few months back and we already saw an explosion of massively funded companies in the spaces Walter talked about. It seems his prediction was spot on for what he should be building if he was in fintech. Lastly, there seems to be a convergence of health, insurance, fintech, wellness, mentally and physically, with plenty of room to grow. It's truly an exciting time to be an entrepreneur. See you guys back here for next week's episode. EOA out.